Well, good morning. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Joe, and I serve as the worship pastor here, and I'm excited to be able to, to bring the message today. We're taking a break from walking through the book of Romans. Um, we're going to be in there for a few years, and we're, we're coming up on a, on a neat place at our church where we're nominating deacons, and we're also talking with guys about elders. And so last week, Pastor Aaron, he took us through Acts chapter 6, where we saw the practical need of the deacons and what they're accomplishing And today, I'm going to preach on the only passage in Scripture that gives us the actual qualifications of those deacons. And so we're going to we're going to tackle a lot, but I think it's uh, it's going to be fun as we just dive into Scripture. And I want to challenge you that when others disagree or when there's debate about certain passages, run to God's Word and search it out for yourselves. I think we're too quick to make our opinion the interpretation instead of actually what God's given us. And we should approach Scripture in such a way that we're thankful that God has given us guidance, He's given us direction, and He's given us exactly what we need in those certain situations. So today, like I said, we're going to dive into the qualifications. Again, we're doing this because on Monday, I believe, we're going to send out the names of the people that you nominated who made it through the interview process. That way you guys have a moment to kind of ask some questions or whatever, and then we're going to vote on these men to serve as deacons in our church. And so we want to give you guys... What the Bible shows, we've walked through this with all the men, but just so we're all on the same page, this is an exciting place for us to be in our church. So today, 1 Timothy chapter 3, I encourage you to open your Bibles, it'll be on the screen as well, and let's stand in honor of God's Word as we read 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 8. The Bible says, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that's in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your direction. And God, I pray that we would approach your word the way we ought to, that it's your word, the truth, and it's to guide us. Open our hearts today as we look at your word. God, remove me from the equation. Don't let me be a stumbling block. And God, let us just focus on what you have to say. We want to give you the praise, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So what we're going to do here is we're going to, I think Paul shows us two things. He shows us the qualifications and then the blessing for serving as a deacon. But in the qualifications, he also breaks it down into two parts. And so we're going to walk through those. We're going to spend most of the time on the qualifications, but then there is a blessing, which is quite phenomenal as well. So the first thing we see is the qualifications. When we look at verse 8, it says, deacons likewise. Now that word likewise is similar to the word like therefore. It's pointing us back to something else. And deacons likewise in verse 8 is the same as the overseer, the elder, or the pastor's qualifications in verses 1 through 7. And so as we go back and we look at what they're like, we see something. In verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, the, trust, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now we see two things here. The first one is we see that there's an office. All right, so there's an office of overseer, pastor, elder, bishop, whatever word, it all means the same thing. There's this office that they hold, and they also are aspiring or desiring that office. And so as we look at the office, it's important because Deacons likewise, right? There's a reason that there's office of deacons. Rather, a deacon just means servant or waiter of tables, right? But there's an office of deacon. We see that very clearly in Philippians 1.1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, 
to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. You see a distinction between just believers and those who hold the office of pastor, office of deacon. So when we think of the office, it's, it's interesting. Last week, Pastor Aaron talked about uh, Acts chapter 6, and we'll get to that in a moment. But there's also another place in Scripture that I found this week that was very interesting, all the way back in Exodus chapter 18. And so I want to encourage you to turn there. It's not going to be on the screen. There's a lot of verses, but I want to just kind of highlight some stuff. This is, I'm not at all saying that elders and deacons were established back here. But what we do clearly see is that God's way of caring for his people has always been the same. In Exodus chapter 18, we see Jethro, which is Moses' father-in-law. He goes to see Moses. And he sees Moses sitting and judging the people. They stood before him morning till evening. And Jethro asks him, he's like, what, why, why are you doing this? And he said, well, they come to acquire about God. They got these disputes, and I'm teaching them these things, so that way we can handle these disputes. And in verse 17, Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. It's important to note Jethro is also a priest. This isn't just a father-in-law caring for his son-in-law. He says, obey my voice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. Now, that's slightly different, old covenant to new covenant. But notice this next part and see if it doesn't sound familiar. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do, leading them instruction in God's ways. Verse 21, moreover, look for able men from all the people. And look at the requirement. Men who fear God, who are trustworthy, and who hate a bribe. And place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but the small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. Notice the result. Verse 23, if you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people will go to their place in peace. Remember Acts chapter 6. A dispute was risen, right? People felt like they were being neglected. This wasn't just a little thing. This was a big thing. And Paul says, look, our priority is to ministry of the word, prayer and ministry of the word. We do, it's not right for us to not do this to meet this need. So they raise up deacons, deacons to do the tasks that need done, that pull the pastors away from their, their priority. And guess what? As we talk, you don't hear about it anymore. The people went away to their place in peace. So again, not trying to argue that this is when pastors and deacons, but yet you see something here. You see those that God has called to his people to lead them in the instruction of the Lord, those that he's called to then care for the people, and that makes everything work the way it's supposed to. Side note, Moses had to lead three million people. Can you imagine that, Aaron? <laughs> so as we, as we look at this, we, we see the office, and that's going to become important here in a moment. But we also see, going back to deacons, likewise the overseer, that they aspired and desired this office. Aspire is an external work, and that's going to become important when we're talking about the qualifications. But there's also an internal desire, a passion to want to do this. When we interviewed the men that you guys nominated, that's what we asked each one of them. Why do you desire this? Because that's important that there's a passion to serve God's people. God places that on you. So, so we look at the qualifications. Again, likewise to the overseer, they're slightly different because practically they are different. A pastor and a deacon, they have different priorities in the church. 
So as you look at verse 8, specifically, what are the qualifications for a deacon? The verse will be on the board. It says, deacons likewise must be dignified. This is someone who's honorable, honest, someone who's looked up to and greatly respected because of their character. Someone who's not double-tongued, which basically means when they tell you something, they're not, they're not deceitfully meaning something else. They're not telling you one thing, doing another thing, anything like that. They mean what they say. Not addicted to much wine. And very generally here, not, they're not controlled by anything. They're able to clearly think at all times because their role depends upon that. They can't be influenced in a way that they can't think clearly. And not greedy for dishonest gain. It's important when you deal with finances in a church or when you deal with anything like that. You know, be greedy in any level is terrible, especially in the finances of the church. Verse 9 says, They also must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. This speaks of a mature Christian. Someone who not only understands the mystery of the faith, which again, is that you don't earn it yourself. You can't do this yourself. It's through faith in Christ Jesus alone, and it's open to everyone. Not only do they believe that, they, they truly believe it with a clear conscience. There's a confidence that this is the way of salvation. So we see these qualifications laid out, but Paul's going to continue, and I think he's going to show us two things of these qualifications. The first one is that they must be tested by the church. In verse 10 it says, And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. You see, your words aren't what disqualify or qualify. It's your actions that do. See, when we remember in Acts chapter 6, Paul says, go find men of good reputation, right? It wasn't that they went out and said, okay, you're a guy. Tell me what you would do. Tell me what you would do. Tell me what you would do. When we asked you to nominate men, it wasn't, let's line them all up and ask questions. You knew those people because you had been watching them. You have been testing them. There's a natural progression in the church that we see throughout Scripture. You have a body of believers that gather together. Then God gives them pastors to teach and instruct them in the ways of the Lord. And then as those needs arise, then they bring out men from the, from the body to then that they trust with the care of the body. We've been testing these men ever since we started this church. There's a reason these names popped into your mind. You've watched them. You've paid attention to them. We, um, we asked the men... Because it says if they've tested and proved themselves blameless. We're going to get to proving here in a second. So do you feel like you're blameless? Every one of the guys is like, ah, nah, I don't know about that. Which shows their humility, shows their maturity. But the reality is blameless is not perfect. And a lot of times when we see that, we think perfection. There's only one perfect, and that's Jesus. He left a bunch of us a mess trying to help each other in a mess, right? Blameless is not perfection. In fact, I think it's important to notice how Paul uses the word too. In Philippians 3, 6, he says of himself, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, if that meant perfection, that could not be true. In fact, it's not. Verse 7, he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted for loss as Christ, for Christ, right? Paul was far from perfect, but he was above reproach. The word blameless implies like a model example. Somebody who displays an attitude and a character in the way they raise their, uh, their kids and their, their wife, all serving them, such a model example that you look up to them. Pastor Aaron's pastor used to say that if somebody throws an accusation at you, is it going to stick or is it going to fall to the ground? This is how these people are tested. If somebody says, hey, this guy over here, he's a loser. You know, he treats his wife and everybody bad. Are people going to be like, you know what, I, I, I can see that. Are they going to be like, no, you've heard wrong. I know this person. In fact, it's someone I look up to. Paul says that you must be tested by the church, which happens in your everyday life. And then the second part of this, he shows us that that's proven in the home. Verse 11, look at this. 
Their lives likewise must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and households well. Deacons are tested by the church, but they're proved in the home. Your home life is where the rubber meets the road. You can say whatever you want to say, but the reality of how you live your life is what proves whether you believe that. In verse 5 in Timothy chapter 3, Paul says this, For someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Paul puts it right out there. If you can't manage your own household, how can you care for God's church? Right? You have to be a proven example of this. But he also, in that verse, shows us what it's like to care for the church. Men think of loving your wife, helping your wife. It's easy, right? No issues there whatsoever, right? I know I'm the only one who struggles sometimes to understand exactly what my wife needs from me. Because I, I see things differently than she does. I also think it's funny, you see young couples, like they always say opposite attract, that's not us. We, we like everything the same. Well... You might say you do, but the way you think about it, feel about it, and respond to it are radically different, right? The reality is we're different. Men and women are different, and we're also very selfish. And so when it talks about managing your home, we've all been in those situations where we don't understand, but yet we can't let it go. We have, to, we have to resolve the issue. Same way with our kids. How often is it impossible a kid that's fully convinced he knows everything doesn't see how little he actually knows? I mean, that's infuriating sometimes. Again, I know I'm the only one. But how do we handle those situations? How are we leading in the home? Do you love and care for your family enough to work through those things to get them to where you think they ought to go? Blameless is not perfect, but it is a model for other things. And as we think about if blameless was perfect, how would we explain perfection in managing your home? See, we all have different ways to do it. Everyone's different. The way you treat your wife, your kids looks different than the way I do, but we're looking for a result. We're going to do it in different ways, but the result is what matters, and that's what Paul's talking about here. I'm going to use my dad as an example here. My dad is the first one to say, I'm not fit to do this, yet every one of you said he was. My dad, growing up, I feel like he did everything the way he should have. He's someone I look up to greatly. I want to be a husband like him. I want to be a dad like him. He wasn't perfect, but he loved us so much, and he cared about us, and he was willing to sacrifice so that way we would be better off. Dad's not perfect, but he is blameless. He's an example that we can follow. And what's exciting to me is the men that you've nominated that we got to interview, every one of them are people I look up to. Men that I look up to, like I want to be more of a husband like them. I want to be a dad like they are. It's exciting to see how God provides for the church. So deacons must first be tested. And if they prove themselves blameless, they can serve as deacons. And I need to take a second. We're going to address something. We believe the Bible is very clear that the office of deacon, the office of pastor is reserved for men. We're not the only ones. Or we're, there's, not everyone believes that, Okay. And what I want to do here is I'm not going to pick or attack anyone, but I want us to dive into Scripture because this is heavily debated. And in fact, some think to have that view, you've got to be a male chauvinist who hates women and can't stand them being leadership. And I assure you, that's not the issue. How we're to approach God's Word is that it's true, it's accurate, sufficient, and it's the best way in everything that it speaks to. 
So I want to take a moment and address these things as we look at Scripture to build our confidence. I know most of us feel the same way, and if you don't, I hope this helps you. If you do, you're going to be questioned about this down the road. But I think the little things like this can turn into very big things if we're not careful. How do we interpret Scripture? There is a way to do it. Spirit guides us, and His Word is sufficient in that. So the first thing that they'll point out, verse 11, it says, Their wives likewise. Many will throw and say, that's not right. The word in the Greek actually means woman. And that's correct. The word is gune. And it means woman. And it can mean woman, wife, a woman who's betrothed like a fiancé, or a widow. And they'll say, because the word can mean those things, it's wrong for you to apply wife to that. Now here's the reality. There's only one word. There isn't a word for wife. There isn't a word for a widow. There isn't a word for those things because the context dictates what type of woman that is. No different than than man. So when it talks about a husband, the word is still man. But it's a husband if he's married to a woman, right? So the context dictates that. This word woman, Paul uses in his letter 61 times. I went through and read all 61 of those times. 55 times it's translated wife. And it's accurate because it's completely confined within the relationship with a woman he's married to. Six times the word's translated woman because there is no context of a relationship. It's just a woman. So the context proves proper translation. And there's a danger in taking a word because it can mean certain things and apply interpretation on whichever one you want to use. An example of that would be Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, we're told God created all the earth. And six literal days and rested on the seventh. People argue, no. The word day can mean a literal 24-hour. It can also mean like the day of Adam. It can also mean an age, a large span of time. And because it can mean those different things, therefore you can't hold to a literal day. And that opens it up for evolution or whatever you want to say. But the reality of it is, though the day can mean different things, the reason it can mean different things is because context dictates what it actually means. In Genesis, every time the word day is used, it's confined in those days of creation to a morning and evening the first day, morning and evening the second day. I preached on this a few months ago, and I'm not going to get into it, but all throughout Scripture, we know that it had to be a literal day. Context matters for us to understand. So what's the context? Is wives a proper translation here, or should it be women? They'll say the context is likewise, and I agree with that. So when you look at verse 11, it says their wives likewise, or they'll say women likewise. And just like verse 8, deacons likewise, denotes a new group of people, they'll say so does this. And they're right. But because it denotes a new group of people, it also tells us something else. Just like deacons likewise or overseers are not overseers, women likewise deacons are not deacons. The context dictates that it is a separate group. They're not in the same category. i got to calm down a little bit. I can feel myself, right? <laughs> and I want to be careful. I'm not, I don't want to attack opinions, but I want us to see clearly in Scripture. Because this stuff can sound good, but God's Word is so clear. They'll say, well, if women can't be deacons, why are they given qualifications that look like deacons? And again, why are deacons given qualifications that look like overseers? Because there's a similar context. The wife of a deacon is critical for the deacon to actually do his job in the office. And here's my question. If women can be deacons, why is verse 11 even here? Wouldn't they fall under verse 8? 
we're given the qualifications of a deacon. Why is there separate unless it's a separate group, right? So I believe the context is likewise, but it's also verse 12. Look at verse 12. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife. It doesn't get any clearer than that, but unfortunately people debate that like crazy. And so I want to break it down. Because what's fascinating to me is the way they debate it is they explain exactly what it is, which proves that this is the correct translation. So the husband of one wife in the Greek literally means a one-woman man or a man of one woman. So they say it speaks to the sexual purity and the faithfulness within a relationship, not marriage. Question, can you be sexually pure outside of marriage? No. That's called fornication, right? The only way to be sexually pure and to prove your faithfulness is in the confines of a marriage. But then they'll say, well, no, it just talks about faithfulness to your spouse, so therefore a woman can be faithful to her husband. But that's not what it says. And in fact, in Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, 9, speaking of a widow who's allowed to be enrolled into the care of the church, says that she had to have been the wife of one husband. Literally in the Greek, a one-man woman. Why did Paul not use... One, one man woman to describe woman, why did he say a one woman man? He could have used it the other way he did just in a couple chapters later, but he didn't. What we see here is that the deacon is a man who is faithful to his wife and manages his household well. It does mean woman, but a woman who's married to a man is a wife. Paul says, let deacons each be a one-woman man or the husband on one wife. And we're to manage our, the children and household well. The end of verse 12 says that. that it's, it's the deacon's responsibility to manage. And we're not saying women don't play a role. They play a vital role. Just like they play a vital role in their husbands being holding the office of a deacon. The wife and mother plays a critical role in the family, yet the responsibility is on the man. If we look at Ephesians 6.23, Paul says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church. He goes on to say, therefore, we're supposed to love our wives the way Christ loved the church, to give ourselves up for them, to care for them in such a way. I mean, think about that. That's the responsibility of the man, is to care for our wife in the way Christ loved the church. It's a tremendous responsibility. He says in the same way, husbands should love their wives as, they, as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. When I read that, I immediately thought of the pain that might get inflicted on our own body and how we care about that so much. You stub your little toe, right? Man, after you wallow on the ground, you get up, and what most men, we're going to throw whatever we kicked out the window, right? <laughs> and I thought about that. That's, that's how we're to care for our wives. We're to care and love them in such a way that we throw out stuff that harms them. We love them in such a way that we're protecting them. Not that they can't handle things on their own, but it's our responsibility to watch over and to love them like Christ loved the church. Paul goes on in chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's interesting, in the New Testament... The only time parenting is described is right here, and it's to the fathers. Not that wives and moms don't have a huge role, but the responsibility is on the man. It's our responsibility to manage the households. So as we look at the context, it's pretty clear. Just like men, men are, men are required to, to hold the office. And again, to just real quick, to address why women have a 
If it is their wives, why do they have a separate qualification? And again, I think it's pretty clear. Let's reverse the qualification. Can you imagine a deacon doing well, as verse 13 says, to serve well if his wife wasn't honorable? If his wife was a backbiter and a malicious gossiper? If a wife wasn't sober-minded, if a wife wasn't faithful, wouldn't that disqualify that man to begin with, let alone make it impossible for him to serve? The Bible doesn't undermine women. There's an incredible value in them to accomplish what needs done, but the responsibility is on the man. So the last thing I want to address here is what most people run to. What about Phoebe, right? What about Phoebe? Paul says in Romans 16, verse 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Centuria. I don't know how to say that. Now, most translations say it just that way, a servant of the church. There's only two known translations that say deacon. So they say she was a deacon or a deaconess of the church. And people run to this, like, she's a deacon of the church. How can you say women can't be deacons? And again, I I hate that it feels like I'm attacking. Let's look at Scripture. What does Scripture say? See, here's the reality. The word that Paul uses to describe Phoebe is the same word he uses to describe someone who holds the office of a deacon. But he also uses that same word 27 other times to describe any servant of Christ or of other people. That word in the Greek is not deacon. Deacon is a translation. The word in the Greek describes somebody who's serving. The word that we translate deacon shows someone who serves in the office. 29 times the word used, only three times does it say the word deacon because it's attributed contextually to somebody who serves as the office of a deacon. So why is it then? Do we assume she has to hold the office of a deacon and she isn't just a servant of Christ like everyone else? No one's taken away anything from Phoebe. Paul says to commend her that you should welcome her in in a way that's worthy of the saints. Phoebe was a phenomenal example of a servant. But for us to jump to the conclusion that she held the office of a deacon would put her in the minority of the verses that are actually used. And here's the reality. There's a danger in doing so. There's a danger in saying, well, this must mean this. Therefore, I have to look at Scripture in the view of that. So if if we're going to say that Phoebe was a deacon, then we have to change everything we see here in 1 Timothy. Why isn't that we read everything in 1 Timothy and look at Phoebe differently? And I want to give you another example of the danger of that. We think of the Latin Vulgate. Uh, St. Jerome, 383 AD, wrote the Latin Vulgate. For the most part, that's the Bible that the Catholics still hold to today. It's a good translation. But there's a, there's a couple verses that instead of repent for the remission of sins, he translated do penance for the remission of sins. Now, if you Google this, you're going to find the interpretation of do penance. The reality of it is that, that word's not wrong. That word's not doesn't connote anything bad. Yet, thousand years after he writes it, the Catholic Church started to adopt that you're actually this is a external work that you have to do in order to be saved. Now, follow with me here a second. It got to the point where this is what caused the Reformation for the most part that they were people were paying to get themselves out of purgatory or loved ones out of purgatory. Martin Luther found out it was just to fund the new temple. And then he went back and looked at how can you come to this interpretation? So here's the danger. Someone said do penance meant that it was an external work for salvation. But here's the reality. The Latin Vulgate has all the Bible in it. It has Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Clearly you're saved by faith and not of works lest any man should boast. It has all the book of Galatians, Philippians, every single book in the Bible. There's no way that you could take that word, do penance, and say that it's an external work for salvation in light of all of Scripture. But what happens is they take a verse. They say, this is what it means. 
Therefore, everything else doesn't mean that. And that's what happened at the Council of Trent. To justify this stance, these other verses can't mean what they mean. My question is, why don't they mean what they mean and this one can't mean what it means? I think Phoebe is an example that no one's taken away anything from Phoebe, but we shouldn't add things either. God's word's clear. Deacons, just like pastors, those who hold the office, are reserved for men who meet the qualifications listed here in 1 Timothy. It's not that men can serve as deacons and women can't. It's that only certain men are allowed, period. Unfortunately, I do sympathize. Most that oppose this view, they've seen the shortcomings of men. They've seen the office of deacon and pastors be abused. They've seen it being abused in their own home. And that breaks my heart, but here's the reality. If we reject the way it's supposed to be because of the way it is, then the way it is will never be the way it's supposed to be. I want to say that one more time. If we reject the way it's supposed to be because of the way it is, the way it is will never be the way it's supposed to be. See, our generation, unfortunately, we see issues in the local church, and then we want to run from God's design. When instead we should run to the scriptures and we should fix the problem, and we should go back to what he's established. We're walking through this because we're getting ready to nominate deacons in our church. It's important that we nominate men who meet the qualifications. Otherwise, we become another statistic. So we saw the qualifications broken down into two parts. Deacons should be tested in the church, proved in the home. And the final thing, and we're done real quick. Verse 13, Paul says there's a blessing. Look at verse 13. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that's in Christ Jesus. Remember Acts chapter 6, Paul says nominate men of good reputation. Men that are nominated as deacons already have a good standing. And when you serve well, you get a better standing. And while that's good, there's even a greater thing. Paul says that you'll gain a great confidence in the faith that's in Christ Jesus. Think about a time when you went through a difficult situation and you had to rely on God's word. And when you relied on God's word and you trusted him, he came through. The confidence that that built in you. I want to remind deacons that me and Pastor Ann have to remind ourselves all the time, what we're doing is a tremendous opportunity. When you serve as a deacon, you get an opportunity to serve in the lives of people, to guide them in a way, and when they trust the Lord and their confidence grows, so does yours. It's a tremendous opportunity as, as a pastor to be able to study God's word and to gain confidence. It's a tremendous opportunity as a deacon to serve the church and to see lives change, which only builds a greater confidence. Now, as men, we all want to serve our families well. We all want to see the church uh, do what it's supposed to do. And when I look at this, Paul says it to encourage us. Because the reality is it's going to be difficult at some times. Right now it's exciting. People are pumped up. I want to do this. I want to do this. But working with people is hard. Just like your household, right? Things can be great. And a second later, everything just hit the fan. And you don't know what to do. Paul does this to encourage you. If you serve well, then you'll receive this blessing. Which means that some don't serve well. And man, as we want to serve our families, as we want to serve our church, can you think of a better reward than having a great confidence in the faith of Christ Jesus in the time we live in right now? With what our kids are being taught at school, with the way the world's turning on what we believe so harshly, can you think of a better time for us to increase our confidence in the Lord? And Paul says that that is the blessing of someone who serves well as a deacon. So I pray as our church, as we nominate these men, that these men would serve well. And that we would trust that God's way and his order and his design to care for his people is the way we would follow. And I know that he'll bless for that. So I'm going to ask the praise team to come as we close.
I ask you just to bow your heads as we reflect on this. And it is my prayer that as we come up on difficult topics, not that the Bible is unclear, but that the world is so opposed, that we would run to Scripture and not to our own interpretation. That we'd run to God's Word as sufficient, as true, and as right, not to our opinion and what makes sense to us. My grandpa used to pray all the time, God, don't let us change your word to fit our heart, but God, change our heart to fit your word. And I pray that we do that. And as I pray, if there's anyone here that doesn't know the Lord as Lord and Savior, the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I pray that if he's opened your eyes to that, that you would respond. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given us the instruction that we need. And God, I pray that we would trust that what you've given us is sufficient. We need nothing more and nothing less. God, I pray that we would just keep our nose in your book. You promised through your spirit that you would talk to us, that you would make these things known to us. And that if we desire wisdom, all we need to do is ask and you'll give it to us. I pray we do that. And God, right now as we respond through song, I pray if someone doesn't know you, that God, you would open their eyes that you would make them known that the gospel is for them, that you've done all the work. It's a gift from you. I pray they respond. God, we want to give you all the praise for all that you've done, all that you've given us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.